0: Today's scripture reading is from Acts 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see what the apostles and elders thought about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told the Gentiles how they had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. This is the word of the Lord. So I get to introduce Mandy and JJ today, my good friends. Um, Mandy sits on the formation team here at Imago, and the teaching team has been here for a long time. And JJ sits on the teaching team, and is obviously a worship leader, and does all things technology related at Imago, and we're very grateful for that. So um, I just want to introduce what we're doing today. and I forgot my phone, so I'm gonna go get it, just a second. Okay, so there's gonna be three topics today, and so essentially what this panel is, is we're gonna, as JJ was saying, there's a way to disagree well. There's a way to um, disagree without making the other person feel small or condescending to them. And JJ and Mandy are gonna model that today. Um, When it comes to Mandy and JJ, I've watched them debate things. If you ever want a place to actually do something similar to this, not a debate, but like to practice or think through what you believe. East Drinks and Orthodoxy on the second Wednesday of every month um, is gonna come back in January. We're taking December off, but in January, the second Wednesday of every month at Pizza Works, we meet and we actually have guided conversation about theological topics. So if this is something you're interested in on a regular basis, we've got a place for you to do that. Um, so there's gonna be three topics and um, I'm gonna introduce the first one and, and we'll go through But the idea with these is that Mandy and JJ will talk about this topic in a way that is respectful. So the, is there anything else you want me to say before we start? Okay, Okay. so the very first topic is a very heady theological topic, and some of you may not even realize that this is in the realm of Christianity, that people actually talk about this stuff. So this one is on the humanity and divinity of Christ, or as J.J. likes to say, instead of divinity, he says omniscience. So omniscience means that you have pre-knowledge of things. So um, a little little description of this. While we can't truly know, quote-unquote, the full reality of Jesus during his time on earth, and even if we had the facts could never comprehend all of it, it is important to explore some of the broader, more heady theological questions of our faith. In this instance, we will discuss differing thoughts about what Jesus did or didn't know while he walked with us. Did he know in advance what events would transpire? Was he aware of the full expanse of divine knowledge? What difference could that make in our understanding of his role and ministry on earth or the nature of the resurrected Christ? So for this topic, JJ is going to go first.
1: So uh, you're going to see a running theme between Mandy and I where um, when I present like what I believe about a topic, it's going to be the more historical aspects. It's going to be much more in line with kind of historical thinking. Mandy's going to probably take the opposite idea. So in this case, uh, with, um, as I call it, the omniscience of Christ, this conversation came up because I was remembering something that happened in college where someone went up to a student-led thing and said, basically asserted that... Christ had no knowledge of the miracles that he was going to perform until the very moment he did them, which uh, while I was going through college was defined as a heresy. I mean, what what do you mean that Christ didn't have the knowledge of the miracles until he was going there? And so in that omniscience, that foreknowledge, I'm under the belief that Christ had full knowledge of what he was going to do while he was on this earth, maybe not the exact particulars, but he had knowledge of, he came to this earth for a reason, he came in man's form to be the redeemer, and as such, he had to do specific things while on this earth, he had to be tempted, he had to be um, go through the desert, he had to live life physically. So in my view, in the historical view, I believe that Christ did have full access and full omniscience to everything that God the Father, God the patriarch, whatever you wanna call that, um, he had full access to that knowledge and he had full access to everything that is Christ. Now, because in my view, if you say for certain, for a fact that Christ did not have access to that knowledge until the very moment he needed it, what does that say towards the idea that he was fully God and fully man? He was 100% God while also being 100% man. Because if he, if he does not have access to that knowledge, then how can he be fully God if he's not fully omniscient at the same time or has full foreknowledge of the events to transpire? So that, that is where my viewpoint stands, and that is, as I said, the historical viewing and the historical understanding of the divinity of Christ. And I'll turn it over to Mandy for her points.
2: Um, so to start, I, I would maybe say that JJ's view is more the traditional view rather than the historical which is something that we absolutely (laughs) can talk more about. Um, And before I get into what I believe, I will say what I believe about the nature of Christ while he was on earth does fall into a legitimate heresy. But the reality is that over the 2,000 years that faith has existed, almost everything we believe today was a heresy at some point and there are things that they would have absolutely found heretical about what we believe. I'm gonna interrupt for just one second.
0: I hope that everybody pointed, at, like, paid attention to how Mandy used nuance in language that can help when you're talking to people. It's, so JJ used the word historical, Mandy used the word traditional. So that's something that you can keep in mind when you're talking to family members about hard things. The, the language matters and you can maybe siphon off some of the frustration you might feel by couching it in different language. Just wanted to point that out.
2: And also asking clarifying questions if you're not sure what somebody means by a certain term. So because JJ and I've had these conversations, I know he doesn't mean that what I believe is new. Um, just for him, historical is like, what has the bulk of the church believed over the course of the majority of time. Is that that is fair? Pretty, that's the fair statement, yeah. Okay. So so for me, I, the reason I, st- I, that's a sticking point for me is because what I believe is historical. It's as old as any other belief about Jesus. It just wasn't mainstream. And that doesn't mean that mainstream is wrong either. It just means there is space for what I believe even within the minority of a theological understanding. I hope that all makes sense. So for me, I believed what I was taught for the majority of my faith, which is exactly what JJ kind of laid out. But over time, there was a cognitive dissonance for me, um, specifically in relation to was, was what Jesus was doing when he was going off to pray, when he was seeking understanding from the Father. All of these times that we see him modeling what it looks like to grow in your knowledge of God and your mission, was that all for show? Because if he had all that knowledge already, then he was really just mimicking what he wanted us to see. And even yesterday, JJ and I were discussing the difference between if Jesus knew knew what it was like to be tempted, does that mean he had to actually feel tempted? For me, the answer is yes. If, if Jesus was truly having a human experience, he could not have held all of that knowledge, all of that full expanse of understanding in a human brain and still have been a model for us and how we're supposed to seek that intimacy. So there is scripture that backs both of these viewpoints. There is history that backs both of these viewpoints. Where I land is where I need to be to reconcile what Jesus came to do from my understanding and the nature of how he needed to, to understand the world around him in order to do that. So I believe that he, he did call it selective amnesia. I do not believe that Jesus held all of the knowledge of the divine. I don't believe he knew future events before they happened. Within the context of, you know, miracles and prophecy and those kinds of things, I don't believe he had any greater knowledge than any of us do. And so for that reason, when he says we can all seek the same relationship with the father he had, it's because he chose to experience his faith the same way we do for that time on earth.
0: All right, so if you have questions about that, there will be a and a after we're done with the three topics here today. Is there anything else either one of you want to say? Uh, yeah,
1: I'm just gonna, I think right now it's a good idea to just kind of throw smack back some like, hey, you're wrong and I'm wrong and do that. So... Uh, As I was kind of looking through and researching this topic a little bit, I ran across um, some philosophical ideas on just the idea of knowledge. So my first retort to, like, Mandy's viewpoint would be, okay, so how do you reconcile the, and she already talked about it, the uh, proportional versus non-proportional understanding, which is in proportional, you know a thing. So you have, like, I know intellectually what it is to give birth. I cannot experience that. So I have propositional knowledge of the idea of birth and what it means to give birth and what all that entails. I don't have non-propositional knowledge because I have not been able to experience it. I don't have that experience, and I never will, of the physicality of it. So, And that's kind of the idea where I fall back. Um, so that would be the first counterpoint, which Mandy already touched on a little bit, actually, in her summation of her viewpoints. So... I had notes in here. Let's see, there's notes. Yeah, so while God must know such facts as being crucified, as suffocating, being crucified, as excruciating, being crucified, as humiliating, omniscience does not require that God knows how it feels to be himself crucified, uh, which is more of the trad- traditional historical viewpoint of, yes, God knew all this. He knew exactly what was going to happen. I would, and my viewpoint would go so far as to say that Christ knew what it was to be crucified, but to go through the act, gave Christ and God, new knowledge of the feelings so that he become more empathic God. Any response to that, Mandy?
2: Just that I respectfully disagree.
1: (laughs) In particular with?
2: Um, Again, for me, it goes back to the authenticity of the experience that Jesus had during the 33 years he was on earth. I, I I just can't get to the place where he wasn't truly experiencing temptation. He wasn't truly experiencing loneliness. He wasn't truly experiencing doubt um, because the whole model of faith being taught through Jesus falls apart if if he was just going through those motions or not fully experiencing those. If he couldn't sin, like let's go to the like Sunday school thing. Like if Jesus didn't have the capacity to sin, then some of the things that he taught and said were for show, Um, being fully God in full nature, he wouldn't have been able to sin. So that is the crux for me. And that's why during those 33 years, and I'm very specific, I believe that Jesus existed as the word of God, as part of God from all beginning. And after the resurrection, there is this cosmic Christ idea, which we don't have time to get into now, but Jesus genuinely became the firstborn of a new type of human. Thank you, Switchfoot. So because we are all invited in to become brothers and sisters in that new creation, I am very specifically talking about the 33 years that he lived on this earth, approximately.
0: So I just remind you, this is obviously a really heady theological conversation. My assumption is that you won't have conversations like this at Thanksgiving.
1: If you do, I kinda wanna be a part of them because yeah. This reminds me of college. Like, these are the conversations I had in college and seminary all the time.
0: But our goal in starting with something like this is that you can see that this is a, this is a really broad topic, and there's lots of room for disagreement, and it doesn't actually, it affects how you live, but it doesn't affect, quote-unquote, if you're going to get really conservative, your salvation. It, like, what you believe about this is not to the point of, like, well, we can't, you're not even a Christian anymore, okay? I will remind people that heresy is a matter of dates. It really is. And so we have to work in the framework that we have now and leave room for disagreement for the things that um, are on the the margins. It doesn't mean those things are important or like JJ said, exciting. Just that's not the common space that we dwell in all the time, okay?
1: And real quick, before we go on to the next point, like, I can, it's also important to understand, like, both sides of the conversation, so I can definitely 100% argue for Mandy, uh, which is, yes, the scriptures that usually are pointed to for being, uh, proving that Christ had omniscience, he had foreknowledge, could also just be like, well, he was just very intuitive. Like, he just saw the people were going to betray him. He just saw the emotions on their face, so that doesn't necessarily imply omniscience. And then there's the whole part in... Uh, let's see where does it mark in matthew where he says i don't even have access to the knowledge of the future when i will return again christ literally says that in two gospels so what does that mean that's a fun one
2: have these conversations because we both know that we could be wrong and to me that is an, a necessary prereq is that you acknowledge that at least on some level you might have something to learn. You might have something you need to change your mind on. So, like I said, I did believe how J.J. believes, and it's not that I evolved or, like, moved on or anything like that. Like, what he believes is firmly rooted in logic, history, and scripture. It just became—the cognitive dissonance just became too much for me, and I had to revisit that theology in a way that would sit well in my soul so that I understood— how I was interacting with Jesus. Which
1: is perfectly fine.
0: Right, cognitive dissonance over certain topics doesn't exist for everyone. And when you finally poke that bear, it can be hard. All right, so the next topic that we're gonna have them talk about, and Mandy's gonna go first this time. This one is, this one is a fun one for me because I like to listen to them argue about this. I've listened to them debate several things. The next one is about liturgical worship. Um, So we we do liturgy here, that means like call and response, said prayers out loud, things like that. So the term liturgy literally means work of the people. Regardless of format, our time gathered together is meant to be meaningful, intentional, and creatively worshipful, but does format matter? While preference is a driver in this conversation, we will discuss the benefits and significance of a service that follows a predetermined set of prayers, songs, and readings versus a more spontaneous and free form flow. So I hope everybody understands the difference. We've done, we do both services here at Amago. The longest night service has been very liturgical in the past, it's been free form in the past. Usually it's more of the um, special services that end up being more liturgical, but we do some liturgy on Sunday mornings. So, Mandy.
2: Um, so just to let you all know, we literally were having these debates yesterday during a planning service for Longest Night. Um, so the service you're gonna get on the 21st of December was the result in part of these debates. Um, <laughs> so when, when we say that these are real, like for, for, for reals though, we did this yesterday. Um, so I came uh, into Christianity first through Mormonism and then through an incredibly charismatic non-denominational Uh, assemblies of God flavored um, church in the 90s during like the Brownsville revival and vineyard and all of that stuff. Um, And it was a very narrow view of the faith. I didn't know that at the time obviously. And over the course of time I um, became a little uncomfortable, well increasingly uncomfortable, with how divorced we were from not only other denominations, other Christians, but how we seemed to think we really did have, like, the only truth, which is something we criticized other denominations for doing. Um, And so I eventually, in my 20s, became friends with monks and was exposed to a lot of different types of church services, and I started to find a lot of comfort in the idea of reading prayers and singing songs that had existed for hundreds of years and that linked us to the larger church, both now and throughout history. The emergent movement became a thing and I was all about that. For those who don't know, it was basically just this group of church leaders who um, realized we had become disconnected from our history. And so the idea of merging the ancient with the modern became something that was a goal as people were setting up churches and services and things like that. And so for me, I am a fan of contemplative services, I am a fan of quiet, believe it or not. Um, I am a fan of experiential services where Rob's, Rob Bell's kind of, you know, having manipulatives and engaging the senses and um, and part of that for me too is that we've been really lucky even here at Imago where we have music that's written by the congregation. We create a lot of our content because we want to make sure that we are connected to what the church is actually going through needs what the world is is doing (laughs) um and so I find comfort in some liturgy meaning those pre-written scriptures and prayers and and all of that but a service full of it I quickly disengage because I spend more time thinking about do I agree with the things I'm saying what is the implication of what I'm saying I find it a little bit boring after a while. Um, Lots of words that just feel archaic, like too many alleluias and rejoices. Um, And and so for me, it is partly preference, but it's also a desire to make sure that what we do as a congregation reflects who we are as a congregation. I still think there is value in having liturgical pieces because we do wanna remember we're connected. Apostles' Creed is a perfect example of that for us but I do have a hard time with a service that is all liturgy. As JJ will share though, I am, my perception is not the only one, so.
1: All right, so uh, I grew up in a a non-denominational Church of Christ instrumental church um, where for the vast majority of my high well, high school and below life, they did the same exact order every single week and the order was always printed in the bulletin. So you always knew, what thing was gonna happen? The only thing that was swapped out is um, the songs. And then, when I was in high school, we added a verse that we would read. Yeah, progress. Um, so, like at, By the time I left high school, I was very disengaged with all that because I had a very adverse version, or adversity to just, it, I, I don't want anything printed. Like, I don't want this, it's just, it's too structured and it's too strict. And that was kind of like how I left into college. But I grew up in that, I grew up in a very structured, it wasn't liturgical, because it was non-denominational, so there was no tradition to any of it, it was just what we did. Um, and then through college and seminary, I spent almost 10 years at the same church down in Lincoln. And during that time, we, we morphed over, like in like the last five years I was there, from being kind of a very set in ways to like, we'll just do whatever we want to do. We have a basic template for what we want to do. We don't print anything out. We don't tell anyone what we're doing. Uh, we're just going to plop in these random elements here. We're going to plop in these helmets here. They're all, all fully thought out beforehand, so it's not like we're just thinking of them off the top of our head. It was much more free form in how we could have ideas flow. And then I eventually had a falling out with that church due to just some leadership changes and a whole other thing we don't have time to go into here. but. Um, while I was leaving that church, I had been through seminary and found a deep appreciation for uh, traditional liturgical styles, especially of the higher churches. And after I left there, I attended the Episcopal Church for three years. Every Sunday I would go, and if you've never been to an Episcopal service or a Catholic or Anglican Presbyterian, they're very structured. You do pretty much the same thing all the time, and it's bulletin out, so I did a complete 180 from where I was (laughs) Actually, 360 from where I was uh, in high school. And I just felt a deep love, so much so that when I went on vacation out west uh, in October, I attended the Episcopal Church because I knew what I was going to get. Because to me, I, I don't like, like visiting a random church that's just got no connection to anything because I don't know what I'm going to get. It could be a fantastically awesome Sunday when I go, or it could be the worst thing I've ever heard with the shoddiest theology and just surface level understanding of anything. It's always, it's a crapshoot. You never know what you're gonna get. But when I go to a high liturgical service, I know what I'm gonna get. I know I'm gonna be able to take and partake in the communion. I know that I'm going to be able to hear the word read and be able to engage in that on a regular basis. Whereas everywhere else, maybe not. Like I. I always have that tension here of I want to bring in those elements more, but it's always at odds with who we are as a community. So just, I find a deep appreciation and understanding because there is some comfort in knowing that I know I'm going to get specific things out of that morning.
0: Just to interject my own thing. I usually take the third way and just ask to see the liturgy beforehand to see if I agree with it or not. And then just abstain from the pieces I don't want to say. So there is a third way there. Um, I don't have any clarifying questions. This really just sounds like a disagreement of preferences. Do you think that that's accurate?
2: I would say to a point, yes. Um, and, and just to be to be transparent, the majority of the time when JJ and I are having these conversations, and I hope this doesn't sound patronizing at all, but it's, it's for your sake. Um, because if I knew that everybody in this congregation, connected better with a fully liturgical service, I would sit down and shut up like 100% um, because I believe in Imago too much to, you know, get my pants in a bunch over over something stylistic. But I know there are people who are more like me, and I know that there are people more like JJ. And so I think that we willingly engage the tension and have sometimes the exact same argument every single time we're working together on a service. Specifically because I think we both have you in mind and so I just this is not something that would even rise to the level of a debate If we weren't both involved in trying to create those spaces for a community of people that we love So yes, it is stylistic. We come to where we are for very different reasons And I think at the end of the day we reflect hopefully um, some of the diversity that's within the community as a whole
1: nope to the first one yes to the second one um so i i have been a part of and involved in many different types of services over the years from what i was in growing up which is very structured to much more free form to being a part of those highly liturgical orders and i always come back to what my professor in seminary would always tell us she said um, when it gets down to it the most important thing is content if the words that you're saying and the songs that you're singing all point to the resurrection all point to Christ and all point to the singular focus who cares about style and i mean this was uh, early 2010s where we were just coming out of the remember the worship wars of the 90s and the 2000s where it's like
2: <laughs>
1: it's like Melinda no we can't we have to do hymns we can't do wor- we can't do choral songs we have to Yeah, we were coming out of that, so it's very much, that was a very stylistically focused, it was a stupid thing. Um, But, no, I'm just as comfortable in, like, the Episcopal services I am am here as I am in a megachurch that does surface-level everything. I might not like the surface-level everything, but I'm comfortable there. I can work within it. It's, It's neither here nor there because style, at the end of the day, doesn't matter. Style's a preference content is what matters.
0: That was a really good question. Thank you for yes. that. Yes. Yeah. And I think the thing to remember when it comes to preferences going along with what JJ said, it's about the content. These are not things that are, you know, whether or not it's liturgy or free form is not a heretical issue in our day and age. It could have been a long time ago, but for today, it's not a heresy. Mm-hmm. And so we have some leeway there. And the other thing to remember and, like, when you asked if we were fixed, gosh, I hope we're all changing. Right. I, I hope so, because God cannot be known. And so in our continual seeking of him, through conversations with other people's perspectives, I hope that we grow and change and learn more about God today than we knew yesterday. And that
2: requires change. Um, and for myself, I would say that my pre- I, I'm self-aware enough to know where I best engage but when i'm engaging these conversations for the sake of another community i want to make sure i temper and so i'm lucky to be in a group of people with our leadership team where i know i'm respected and my voice has a has a space and so i can make my my voice heard and then i can step back let other voices be heard and seek together to try to find what we believe would be the most advantageous for the community and so though there's two different layers to that for me I, I know how I'm wired, and so I'm not saying I'm fixed. But like my preferences are just what they are. As far as for the sake of a community, not at all. I'm I'm very open to what people need, and if I'm not representing that, I want to hear from the people who are.
1: Uh, to. Real quick, give an example of that. Because Mandy mentioned we were talking about longest night service yesterday. We were. We had this exact argument yesterday. And uh, the tension I always have is, like, if you let me plan something, I'll plan it probably decently well. But it's going to be to my preference. And I'm not going to think of everything. Because, well, I just am one brain. I don't have many brain. And there was that tension yesterday between the conversation of, like, Mandy wanted this to be like, this one thing let's have nothing but silence for like forty five minutes no, it wasn't that, that it's not what she said it's, she didn't go that far, but it was
0: <laughs> maybe twenty minutes it was a good chunk
1: it, it was a lot of it was a lot of silence, and'm i like, but wait, wait, we need to allow people to, we need to bring people out of that somehow and give some space and that's the tension we had is like she pulls me towards things that i don't think of, and I pull her to things she doesn't think of and like we meet in that middle common ground, and I think that's like where the liturgy thing up is is that's where the that is as well i guess just we need to pull to a common ground and find out what for the community work makes sense because i was just thinking like as you asked that question a hundred years ago we didn't have choices <laughs> like you went to the roman catholic or you went to episcopal you went anglican you might have went methodist and baptist that's about it and lutheran yeah thank you um Yeah, so, like, you you had very few choices, and even those few choices were all pretty similar. Now it's, you've got popcorn churches everywhere. So, anyway, that's all I'll say about there.
2: Well, and I would rather argue for an hour with somebody I know is equally passionate and loves this community than try to work with somebody who's like, eh, whatever.
0: All right, so the last topic today, because we are a little bit she here on time as communion and and we wanted to end on communion because the table really is where we all come together with our faith Um, yeah so we find it fitting to conclude with a discussion on one of the central and holy practices of our faith coming together at the communion table while we are excited to engage in a lively discussion on what we believe actually happens when we participate in communion and what the act can mean we will also share our shared reverence for this sacrament, mostly because this most accurately illustrates the truth that it is in coming to the table that we all together find our common ground. JJ, you're going first this
1: time. So, if you don't, if you're around me a little bit, you'll know I don't talk too much until I get to a topic I care deeply about, and then I won't shut up. Uh, this is one of those topics, as is the last one. So. It, it's really hard for me to temper my words because I just want to go on and on. Anyway, so when, it, when we come to the table, um, there are traditionally four major views of how you think about it. You have the Roman Catholic view of what's called transubstantiation, where the elements presented in front of you literally become the body and blood of Christ. So the bread becomes his body, the blood becomes his, or the wine becomes his blood. That's a very traditional view in the Roman Catholic Church. The so ne- what
0: happens to grape juice?
1: Um. Uh, <laughs>
2: Sorry, I It's a good question. Exist. I don't have a.
1: Uh, uh, give me more minutes. I'll give you. And actually, they just, they use wine. Um, sorry. <laughs> the second one is uh, championed by Luther, which is consubstantiation. Uh, it's another, like, crisis there, but doesn't physically change. The, other thir- the third one is uh, a reformed view, which is it's a spiritual awakening, crisis there spiritually and everything. And then the final one is uh, it's just a memorial. The elements are just symbols. There's no special meaning. You put in the meaning you want out of it. I fall into none of those categories, uh, because the the dead guy mentor I had while I was in college, his name is Robert Weber. He is the fundamental shapes of, like, 90% of my worship theology. He had a fifth view that I subscribe to, which is called, um, where'd he go? I just had the word in my head. Anyway, it's a fifth view that, essentially, it's It's all of those, but none of those at the same time. Yes, the bread and the wine are symbols, but they're symbols because they have meaning in them, and they're symbols because something happens. No, the body and blood don't become physically the the or the elements don't become physically Christ, but also yes. No, that Christ is not only in the elements, but also yes, he is in the elements, and he is in the viewer. i literally just forgot the so word both and, it, and it yeah, it's a both and yeah it's a both ends yeah it's four meanings essentially it all comes down to it's a mystery the table is a mystery i don't know what happens there but something does something happens when you meet together with the community at the table and i think he best describes it this way which is at bread and wine god discloses his whole story for those who know how to see yes bread and wine are symbols but they are not empty The ancient fathers taught that symbols participate in the reality they represent. We do not make a symbol meaningful by ascribing a meaning to it, as the Enlightenment teaches. Instead, meaning inheres within a symbol because a symbol signifies a reality and performs that reality. Bread and wine signify and perform God's story and communicate the benefits of God's story to us. Um, later he says, at bread and wine we see creation, fall, incarnation, death, resurrection, ascension, church, the kingdom, and the promise of the new heavens and new earth, and our own transfiguration accomplished through God's union with us, established through Jesus by the Spirit. So that is, oh, where'd it go? <laughs> I'm trying to look at the word, sorry. I, ha- I know this word, and I just keep forgetting it. Real presence, there it is. That is the real presence view that I hold uh, and come to at the table, which is None of the above, but all of the above, if that makes sense. Now to Mandy.
2: So with this one in particular, where we agree is that it is a mystery. Um, We don't fully know what's happening at the table. I also don't think I I fall into any of those uh, predefined categories. For me, at the end of the day, what I believe is happening when we all come forward to take communion together is that we are in the presence of Christ in a tangible, physical way that we can see and touch and smell and taste. And in that, we are called to see Jesus in each other. It's why we do it together. It's why there is somebody handing you the elements. We are going to participate in a form of communion today at the lunch. In many ways, what's going to happen at that lunch is no different than what happens when we come here. The idea is that we are to grow in our understanding of Jesus by seeing the reflection of him in all of each other. And we see aspects of who God is that we can't see on our own. Where the the spiritual mystery comes into play, I don't know that anything happens with the bread and the liquid. Um, I think it was a gift that Jesus gave us. It was a way for him to tangibly say, here is something that I want you to do to remember what I've done. And I don't think he just meant like, feel really sad that I was crucified. I think he meant in my crucifixion, I am laying bare that none of the systems on earth can lead you to salvation. That only comes as you are authentically yourself with God and with each other. And that is what we are committing to at the table. Should we review our lives for sin? Yes. Should we go to our brother or sister if we know that we've wronged them and ask for forgiveness? Yes. But to me, it's more about the relational connection within the understanding that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So what happens to the bread and the wine or the juice doesn't really matter to me. That's a digestive question, and I'm not a doctor. I just know that it's the place that we're invited to find unity with one another, even if we're at odds on everything else.
1: Um, I will say that the, we chose this last partially because this is one of the areas we agree on. Uh, and the part of the area, the area that we agreed on first when we realized it was, oh wait, we're, we're both the opinion, we'd love to have Communion Weekly. Like I grew up doing that. I think it's important to do. Um, logistically, that can be a challenge, um, so, like, we can't always do it here, but I would love to do it every single week. It's uh, something I see as beneficial because if you put the meaning into... Uh, let me backtrack. I, Where I grew up in that lovely little church, uh, there was no meaning to the table. It was a thing we did because we had to do it. And a lot of times the elders who gave the minute, gave the little spiel ahead of time thought of the like thing five minutes beforehand. It was super great and intellectually challenging, you can tell. Um, so yeah, like that, I feel like, is a place where a lot of people come from. is It's a thing to do. We just do it because we do it, because we do it, because we do it, because we do it. it. Which is not how my views have shaped over the years. I don't think where Mandy's views have shaped over the years is there is deep meaning in what we do with that table. Deep and thoughtful. And if you're putting the thought into it and you're making sure that it's not just an act you do every single week because the Bible says so, that's what makes the table meaningful. And then I will tell Mandy she's wrong for just seeing it as a symbol. But at the heart, there is meaning. And as long as you impart that meaning into the table, it can be beneficial.
2: And just to be very clear, it's not like we've asked to do communion every week and the leadership said no. Like that's not, it's just, we both know that we would like that, but we also know there are people that it becomes routine and wrote for. And so again, Imago has sought to strike a balance with all of that. So just to be very clear that that's not like a a passive aggressive ask or anything.
0: (laughs) Well, we have a few minutes Um, and just to wrap up, I want you guys to remember that proselytizing any belief is not the goal of relationship. The goal of any relationship is love and respect. Um, I think the reason that JJ and Mandy disagree well is because they respect each other they trust each other and those that actually came through shallow conversations first okay we you have to start shallow and go deep that's just how it is for any relationship that you hope to build trust in that's just the way it works the other reason that I think that Mandy and JJ disagree well is they know that the person has thought through individually what they what they're talking about it's not something they're coming up with off the cuff they've researched it so if you're in a conversation with someone and you're not sure if they have an opinion or if their opinion is well thought out, you don't have to be their educator. You can just meet them where they are and just ask questions. I think asking questions diffuses most situations that I've been in anyway. Asking clarifying questions, asking questions just to seek that you're trying to, to show the other person that you're really trying to understand I think goes a long way in building relationship and seeking that deeper deeper conversation. And we all know there are some conversations that you will never have resolution with and they may not be worth having, and that's okay. You don't have to have conversations with everyone about everything. It's okay to guard yourself. All right, is there any questions that you guys have either on the stuff that's been presented today or how to disagree well? We're not experts, but we disagree with a lot of people on a lot of things a lot of time. I know that sounds weird, but it's true because we tr- seek to live authentically in the world and, and understand what we believe and put that out there in a genuine way. So Eric's question is that JJ and Mandy have a respect for each other's intellect and faith, and that's why they can disagree well. What happens when that's not the case?
2: I would just echo what Vicky said, that at that point, um, in as non-condescending a way as possible, the goal would be to seek understanding um, of what the person does believe through questions. <laughs> And if at the end of the day, you do understand what they believe and you there's just a hard disagreement, um, try to find the common ground. And, and sometimes it can be the smallest thing, but if you can start with common ground, and I'm not a fan of saying, let's just agree to disagree, unless that's really what you have to do for the sake of the relationship. Most things aren't relationship busters. We might feel like they are, now for me personally i do have some relationship busters any form of bigotry (laughs) racism uh homophobia sexism you know raging male hatred like i i'm not a fan of any of that that will shut a conversation down but if we disagree on politics and i really don't know where you're coming from my options are scream what i think at you hoping it'll change your mind or ask some questions to try to understand if you're a person i respect at all which I would hope anybody in your life you have at least some shred of respect for, then there has to be something about what you believe that I can at least try to understand, even if I'm going to disagree on it. Um, I use my friend Jeff as an example all the time. We hold some views that are very different and that, that, that matter very much to both of us, but at the end of the day, I have way too much respect for him to just disregard what he believes, even if I totally disagree with it, I have to leave space that God's big enough for both of us to be right.
1: Um, Research has shown that if you go into the conversation attempting to change someone's minds for very deeply held beliefs, you will fail and fail hard. Uh, It just is not going to work because nothing you say is going to change their mind because it's so heavily entrenched. Um, To echo what Mandy said, it's to find the common ground. Uh, like, my brother and I disagree on quite a few things. Um, He's much more libertarian-leaning than I am, and we disagree on a lot of, like, should guns be in the church? I'm a hard no. He's a, well, to keep people safe, probably. So, that's a fun conversation to have in the next week, because we've already had it. Um, Or some other things like that. Like, it's just, it's finding that common ground, and I know that we're both coming from a place in that conversation specifically of we want to make sure the people in the building are safe. And my viewpoint is you don't bring a gun to the church at all because that's how you keep the people safe where he says, but what if someone brings in a gun and there's no one there to help save them because they can't retort. What do you do there? I don't have a good answer because that's a really hard conversation. Uh, But we both have an understanding of we're coming from the place of we want to keep people safe. We just have differing ideas of how to get to that point. And I don't know that there's a way that we can reconcile that both of us are both right and wrong at the same time, because we are. There, there's not a right answer to that, I don't think, in, this, in our current climate.
0: Well, and I think it, recognizing cognitive dissonance, like that's an area of cognitive dissonance mm-hmm. that you hold. I think that recognizing
2: that is important.
1: So, Eric, thank you for the question. That was a very good one.
2: Well, and I actually do want to say one more thing, and this is probably the most controversial thing I'm going to say, and if anybody has questions after, I am open to those. It is also okay, regardless of who the person is, if there is somebody that has a toxic belief that you cannot reconcile, it is okay not to have them in your life. I don't care if they're your mom. <laughs> um, if there is somebody whose belief system is so contrary to what you believe at a gut level. I'm not talking intellectual or even faith at this point. I'm saying if there is somebody who holds a belief that is destructive to you or to people that you love, it is okay to have really hard boundaries, including not having them in your life at all. So I just wanna make that very clear that seeking understanding, absolutely. Finding respect, absolutely. Finding common ground, absolutely. There can be a time where you close the door, and that's the most loving thing you can do. And we see that modeled by Jesus in the way he talked to the Pharisees. He was being loving when he told them that they were whitewashed tombs.
1: Or, theologically, it is 100% okay to not have any idea or feelings about a thing at all. Um, like, just not care.
2: You
0: don't have to have an opinion on everything. Yeah,
1: like, I, I have literally no opinion on what happens when Jesus returns. Is it pre, Is it pre op- what I, I don't care. Because I'll be dead by then, um, most we likely. Know. Well, I see, that we don't know. That's the thing. We don't know. Even Christ doesn't know. So I don't, why would I need to have an opinion on that? Like, there's so much intellectual blood that's been shed over that one topic, and I don't need to engage anyone like that. So if it's a topic where you don't have an opinion, that's okay. You don't have to engage. Say, I don't have an opinion, so. <laughs> yeah, pass the cranberry sauce, as Becky said.
0: Becky says to pass the cranberry sauce and just move on. That might be the most loving thing you can say. Any
1: other questions? I'm sure you have some ringers in your head. You're like, I want to ask that question, but I don't know if it's a stupid question. It's not. We might give stupid answers, but it's not a stupid question.
0: So what Elmer just shared was that um, he said you, you know, maybe he doesn't agree with Mandy or JJ on a lot of the things that were said today, but he can have his own beliefs on that. And one of the things that he liked about this community is that we can, all have, we can all have different ways. There's not a right or a wrong, it's just we're all coming together and this is what we believe. Um, we do need to, to finish, right? Um, my final comment is that what you just said, Elmer, reveals that the Holy Spirit works in mysterious ways. And I can trust that the Holy Spirit leads you the same as the Holy Spirit leads me, which is exactly why we read the passage from Acts 15. The early church had this same problem, and their solution was, let's agree on these few fundamental things, and let's not worry about the rest. Let's agree that we've all been saved by faith and that the Holy Spirit leads us all.